So I'm a huge believer that uh, just about anything is possible. Now there are a few things that I'm like, well, maybe not yet on that. Uh, but if you if you talk with the great group of people I get to work with, um, I think I, I hope that's one of the things that comes through is that all of the things that we have done have really seemed impossible to start with. You know, if I look back at some of the work that we've done on um, greener solvents. I remember back in, in 2013 to 2015, and some of my colleagues laughed. They were like, this is not gonna happen. This is not gonna happen. Welcome to Big Time Sustainability. Big Time Sustainability is brought to you by Center for Big Synergy, and it is a United Nations Global Goals Initiative. On this show, global leaders and changemakers tell us how they are combating major challenges like climate change, loss of biodiversity, hunger, poverty, inequality, and many more. Big Time Sustainability aims to inspire all of us to follow these leaders and act with urgency to create a more sustainable world. If you are a changemaker or know someone who is making a big difference in their community or globally and should be on this show, please email us at podcast at thebigsynergy.org or visit www.thebigsynergy.org. Welcome to Big Time Sustainability. Um, our guest today is Jeffrey Whitford, the Vice President of uh, Sustainability and Social Business Innovation at Millipore Sigma. Welcome to the show, uh, Jeffrey. First of all, I think for the benefit of all our viewers and listeners, uh, would you mind sharing a little bit of your journey uh, to becoming one of the champions of sustainability? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, one of the things that is kind of uh, strange about my journey is I started out as an intern uh, proofreading uh, the Sigma Aldrich catalog. And this happened about 19 years ago. Um, and I wouldn't have known at that time that that was going to be the start of this journey. But uh, I've been actually with the same company uh, for the past 19 years. Uh, I worked for Sigma Aldrich to start. And then in 2015, um, our company was acquired by Merck KGA Darmstadt Germany. And uh, as I had begun as an intern and then worked through a couple of other jobs as I got a full-time job, about six months in, they asked me if I would help with the community stuff. Uh, and that was really the name of it at that point in time. It was five things that were happening in St. Louis that they needed help coordinating. Um, and I was like, sure, you know, I was new to the organization. I was looking for ways to get plugged in. And this seemed like a really great opportunity. And what I didn't know, it was volunteering for that that actually led me to this path towards sustainability because I, I was working on kind of social responsibility, social sustainability. Um, and that became a full-time position uh, that then morphed into me uh, having responsibility for our entire sustainability portfolio in late 2009. And it's uh, pretty incredible to look from there till now uh, to see about the changes because the list of things that I didn't know or didn't understand were far longer <laughs> than the things that I did know in terms of things like carbon emissions, uh, green chemistry, uh, energy efficiency, um, social policies. Uh, but now I, I, don't, I definitely still don't know it all, but uh, I definitely have a much broader uh, depth of understanding of, of the many challenges that we're facing, but also um, how we can work as an organization uh, to encourage and to, to see change happen. 
All right, great. And you know what really inspires you, Jeffrey? Because obviously, uh, this is something. Or as we've spoken to several leaders, we understand there is always this uh, purpose that drives any of these champions in sustainability, not necessarily um, to transform business systems or organizations or strategies, but also to transform the wider world. So uh, what was your um, what was your inspiration? What was your motivation? Uh, the the thing that I've really been focused on since I've started is how do I have an impact that's bigger than what I could do individually? That's been my kind of guiding light. As long as I was able to, um, I would say, work with resources to be thoughtful about how we could improve the condition for others, regardless of, of where I was at, uh, that was really the motivation for me. And I've seen that grow over time. And it really is about, for me, um, I think one of the things that's that's most, um, uh, I would say, centered for me is the topic of education. Um, I really see education as a key component. And a, a lot of the programming that we, that we do focuses on education. And so when I see children have an experience with hands-on science, that really turns on a light bulb and you and you can see that moment in a child's mind when when a concept connects that's the moment when i see the impact happening on scale that i just am really appreciative of what i get to do on a daily basis great would you would you want to expand a little bit more on that because uh, that sounds really exciting to me as well yeah, so we uh, kicked off, one of my team members had an idea back in 2016 uh, to come up with a, a mobile science lab that was a shipping container. And, you know, I think at that time we were all kind of like, there's no way this is going to happen. Uh, but uh, we managed to pull together the proposal and get the agreement from our leadership to make it happen. And so we created this mobile science lab that went to all of our sites in the United States and our employees would go volunteer and really model uh, what a scientist look like and the fact that it could be a variety of people. So typically when you ask children what a scientist is, the answer is that it's an old white guy with crazy hair. It's Einstein. And that's so limiting because that doesn't include uh, uh, people of color. It doesn't include girls. And that is just a huge part of the population. And so to see this um, this new vehicle kind of go out and be able to change that dynamic, to be able to showcase um, our employees and have them uh, work with children to help explain some of these careers, but also to lead those children through hands-on experiments uh, that got them closer to technology, things like uh, virtual reality goggles, uh, microscopes, uh, building robots. These are things that most kids don't get to do in their classrooms because the school districts don't have resources. Now we're taking that concept and we're expanding it globally. So we started in the US. We then moved to Europe uh, last year uh, to expand there. The next location will be India. After that, we're going to um, Africa, and then we'll continue that global expansion. But for me, when I look at this program, what started out working with you know, probably about um, 20,000 children is going to start to impact hundreds of thousands of children, uh, really starting to, to see that change happen of what happens, what that spark is uh, when a child gets to experience hands-on science 
science and connects it with things that are relevant to them, right? Uh, thinking about the technology in your phone, how does that work? You know, those are types of things that with programming skills, engineering, we're helping to kind of uh, get more clarity on that that is a career that a child could have. And sometimes kids just don't understand those, those connections. And so for me, that uh, the ability to be a facilitator of that, to partner with educators, uh, to get them access to resources that they don't necessarily have, I think that's really where I see the power of what our organization is committed to. Great. So it's not necessarily just limited to life sciences lab or you know experimentation. It's pretty much technology all across. Right. We try to mix all of these disciplines together, right? Because there are so many, uh, there's so much intersection that happens. And uh, you're definitely always going to have a life sciences flavor, right? Because that's what we know and do so well. But it really then works in some of these other disciplines uh, so that you really do get, I think, a full kind of STEM experience versus it just being uh, one component. All right, great. And um, of course, you know, coming back to um, your role within the organization. So how has been the journey so far towards, say, your climate journey or your net zero journey? Because for a layman, it's often very difficult to understand how big business works, uh, the challenges and, you know, the small wheels and cogs that often uh, don't work the way we want it to. Um, so um, if you had to explain it to, you know, someone who is not from the industry, um, how are you evolving uh, with sustainability as an as a you know, as a business? I think what you pointed out about understanding the business becomes such a critical part uh, in terms of how we've succeeded thus far. You know, I started uh, this component about really focused on sustainability in 2009. And right before that, I was asked to do a rotation in procurement. And when that happened, uh, I was like, this is not what I signed up for. I thought I had done something very wrong. Uh, but what actually happened was it was the best thing that could have happened to me because I actually learned how the business operated. And learning how the business operates, I think, is really key to then starting to understand all the connected threads that you're going to need to uh, be able to deal with as you look at how you're going to decarbonize an organization as complex as ours. So we have uh, more than 300,000 products individual products. So that's significant. We have about 61, 60, we'll call it 60-ish manufacturing sites around the world that manufacture those products. We also have lots of partners that we work with to bring those products in. So there's some that are buy and resell. And then we work with 1.6 million customers. So when you start to see that come together, that can get very tough very quickly. And you know, as you mentioned, for a person who maybe not is core to sustainability, I'm that person, right? I, I started that journey. Fortunately, when I started, you could really learn on the job. I think the the climb has changed trajectory right now, and it's a pretty steep climb, so you kind of be ready to go. But because we think about that, data becomes such an important component to how we execute what we do. One, it's taking a look at things like what your inventory for emissions look like, and then how are you targeting your hotspots, right? So, you know, clear plans of action for scopes one and two. I think those, you know, there's still some challenges in there, but those are easier to deal with. But then you get into scope three. For us, about 69% of our footprint sits in scopes uh, 3.1 and 3.2. So purchase goods and services and capital goods. That means that there's got to be an immense amount of focus, but that's when you tie back the the that 69% to a portfolio of 300,000 products. And you start to see 
how many strings there are that you're going to have to pull to be able to address this. But it starts with then, you know, going a layer of data deeper, right? And 10% uh, of that uh, of that 69% is focused in one portfolio of our products. And we're starting to look at how we can change uh, to waste bio-based materials as raw materials rather than switchy or rather than using fossil fuels, for instance. So it's those types of actions that really come from knowing and understanding the business and how it operates, then building relationships uh, with the different product managers, the different business owners, so that you've got enough of a, of a platform to be able to have a conversation with them and say, I've got an idea. It may sound a little bit crazy, but what do you think about this? And when it's framed in that business context with a little bit of science knowledge infused in, and I'm really fortunate, I've got um, biologists, I've got two PhD chemists on my team who help really uh, make sure that we're speaking the right language. That's when you see the power of this decarboniz decarbonization journey really take hold. And you start to see the business uh, own and, and drive it themselves. So we are not necessarily having to be in the driver's seat on all the topics because there's just too many. Um, but that's really what I think uh, as the, the most remarkable part of this journey is how the business has really taken ownership and said, we're gonna embed it in the business. We believe in it and we're doing it. And that's the, for me, the transformational part of, of our decarbonization journey is the speed and the uptake within such a complicated organization that's happening. Great. Now, it sounds really in a very, very efficient system to me. Uh, you mentioned about scope three emissions, and I know across the industry, this is one of the biggest challenges. What are you doing in particular around that uh, to make it more sustainable? Yeah, so when we look at our scope three emission inventory, you've got a couple of categories that just aren't relevant to us, right? We don't have lease businesses, so that's not something that we're working with. The investments piece, not, not really material relevant for us. So you're looking at categories like the products, you're looking at end of life or, or what the use phase is, you're looking at transportation. So we don't, for instance, have our own uh, transportation. We uh, use third-party logistics services to be able to get our products from our main distribution centers to the customer. Customers. And because of that, um, our decarbonization levers are different than what a lot of organizations may be if they own their own fleet. But we have to move a lot of product around different parts of the world to get to manufacturing facilities and then to a distribution center. And that presents us an opportunity to look at um, how we move from things like air transportation to sea transportation, for instance. You know, there we know you can reduce your emissions by approximately 90% by making that transition. And so we actually just had a presentation um, uh, yesterday with our team to get an update from our logistics team, giving us an, uh, a, a new view of what's happening with this mode shift product, project, where they are looking at... Um, in the next like two years, uh, eliminating approximately 35,000 metric tons of CO2 by executing this mode shift. And that's, um, you know, what we really look for is how do we have clear roadmaps of what we're doing, the actions we're going to take, and what is the expected CO2 emissions reduction or elimination uh, that we're going to have? So we then understand what are the other steps we need to do, right? So if we've got one part is we're more efficient with how we move materials and we're doing it in a smarter fashion, 
Another part is going to be working with our transportation partners to ask or request that they move to electric delivery vehicles um, as a next step. So for us, it's really about using the data and then breaking it down to understand what are the steps that we can take and what are the areas where maybe we don't have a solution right now. So we put that one in the parking lot. We're also then clear uh, with our partners, with our stakeholders, customers to say, that's one we don't know about yet. If you've got ideas, certainly let us know, but maybe that's a technological solution that's gonna come in time that will be there for us. Uh, another key part, and I would be remiss not to, to mention this, is working with suppliers. Uh, this is such a core and key component. And I think one of the things that the discussions and kind of actions we're taking around the supplier component is how are we doing this in a way that we're viewing it in partnership? So rather than going to, you know, for us, uh, 30,000 suppliers, rather than going to them and saying, give us this information or we need this information, uh, which is just basically, you know, fill in the blank of all the different things you could ask, be it from CO2 emissions, water use, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion policies, forced labor, um, child, it's a long list. But if we really want to see action, Part of it is about making sure that the right policies are in place, but another part of it is enabling our suppliers who may not have the same resource base or maturity level with sustainability that we have. And if that's the case, how do we take the experiences that we've had and turn them into executable uh, strategies, right? So giving them a toolbox that's full of useful tools. How do they do energy efficiency and understand the paybacks of, of making their facilities more efficient so that it's not just, hey, this is a cost, but there's a cost and there's also potentially a financial savings for them. Um, maybe it's a really great payback because there are some you know, low hanging fruit items that you can get at and then there are more sophisticated things. But because we've done it, we can help walk suppliers through that in a more specific fashion rather than just saying, hey, go figure this out and then come back and tell us what you did. Because I just don't think that's going to work. I, I'm a huge believer uh, that partnership uh, is really the way forward. And especially in such a complicated and critical situation as sustainability, we need uh, action that yields results. And to get to that, we're going to have to dig a little bit deeper. And I think this supplier component is a great example of that. Yeah, sure. I think uh, it's a very, very useful way you're using right now uh, to engage with your partners and suppliers in this case. So um, do you have a roadmap as to by what date, which year? Do you think you could um, pretty much become carbon neutral? Obviously, it's hypothetical, I understand, but uh, what's the roadmap like? Absolutely. So we have submitted our science-based targets. Uh, they were approved in May of 2022. This laid out a plan for scopes one, two, and three. Our ultimate goal is climate neutrality in 2040. We are working on a net zero target and debating uh, what date that is. So we're anticipating that coming uh, in the next several months. Uh, but all of the things that we're doing is creating those glide paths to understand, is there a legitimate plan here, right? Because that is one of the things that you hear most frequently, uh, that organizations, companies are unprepared, or this uh, is a lot of talk with a lot without action behind it. And I think um, that for me, I am a sponge of information, right? I read um, a lot specifically in this space, 
And that becomes an opportunity, I think, in my view, of how we can do things differently, right? How are we clear about the steps we're going to take? And don't get me, there's still a lot of work to do. And there are things that right now, there's not a technological solution for. And you can get into some uh, some muddy waters with things like carbon credits and markets that are not necessarily um, doing what they say they're going to do. So I think we want to be thoughtful about how we mitigate risk. And we're not using that as a hedge to be like, it's fine, it's solved. It's not. Yeah. Um, you know, So you're going to see that market develop. But the things that we're doing are lining out uh, what is the glide path? What are the steps? What are the investments that it's going to take to get here? And, you know, for us, and it goes back to that product portfolio I mentioned, there's a lot of work ahead of us. So we're starting to chip away at these bigger blocks. But as you start to get some of these other areas where they are literally uh, materials that, you know, you've, you've got to get at from a chemical standpoint. So we sell small scale uh, research materials. So we're not selling in bulk volumes. Uh, we sell to academic researchers. We're selling to um, life science, biotech, pharma companies that are doing drug discovery to figure out what these next uh, class of drugs are going to be. One, those are taking different forms and shapes. So different materials are being used, but there are still needs and, and uses for some of these other materials that right now we do not have a way to, to decarbonize. And so that's going to be part of how we have to think about the challenges that are in front of us. But for, I would say, some of the bigger categories, I mentioned the solvents, we have uh, clarity on how we're moving forward with that and to be able to solve that problem. Um, and, you know, I think what's interesting about this is it's not just a one-sided issue of us decarbonizing. It's about us decarbonizing, but it's also about us coming up with solutions that then, most importantly, customers actually use. Because if we come up with a solution, but customers aren't using it, it doesn't really do much, right? We, we've probably set ourselves aback. But I think this is where you look at, it's a really an entire value chain conversation in terms of that decarbonization path that you're mentioning. Because it, it working with the suppliers, then getting your operations to be able to put it into play. And then importantly, getting customers to be able to use them and make that transition. I think you've touched upon a very vital point and um, because I am personally also from the life sciences background, have spent several years in the lab using several of the reagents that you your company is manufacturing. <laughs> I think uh, it's, it's a very personal uh, realization for me as well. So how are you involving the customer in this conversation? And I ask this to all the businesses we speak to because that's probably one of the core areas that often goes you know, on the sidelines, but it's pro probably one of the most prominent ones really. Absolutely. This is one of my favorite ones. Uh, so we have approached this in, in two fashions. I'm going to start with the direct customer, and then I'm going to circle back to one that I, um, is still kind of a surprise to me um, in terms of how we've gone about it. But so on the direct customer side, really, it goes back once again to data. So we've worked to develop a customer sustainability dashboard that matches the uh, footprints of the products and the energy use of the facility. So right now we've got scopes one and two, we're working on adding in scope three to be able to give our customers a snapshot of what their CO2 footprint looks like doing business with us. And this is something that is incredibly important and a powerful tool to help them understand what this is gonna look like and to communicate the challenges that are in front of us. Because typically I'm called into customer meetings and you know, we want a capabilities presentation. Okay, no problem, can do that. But then we want to know, how are you going to get us to, to zero? And that's when it goes back. This is not 
on us alone. We can't do that because scientists have choices, right? They're making choices about the materials they're using. But by using or having clear data to help share with the customer, we're helping them understand where these hotspots are and what is problematic. And then if there are solutions, how they could potentially utilize those. But as you'll know, as a, as a scientist, we are all taught uh, certain methodologies to do different experiments uh, that have been around for decades and sometimes a century or more. And all that's right. really, I think, where the big issue comes. And this is the next thing that we've done, which is when you actually go to most universities, there is no... Uh, no curriculum around sustainability and or things like green chemistry. And this was a recognition that I had after visiting kind of school after school and talking about green chemistry. And I kind of got a puzzled look. And the realization that I've had is that if you're at a pharma company and you are working on a new drug to treat um, Alzheimer's or cancer, you are not worried about those very basic beginning reactions. You're worried about figuring out how do you solve uh, a, a disease that has been so challenging um, you know, for so many uh, people around the world. And so getting a scientist to make that shift is extremely difficult. So what we decided to do was to go about this in a different fashion. We have actually started a partnership I should say extended and, and grew a partnership with an organization called Beyond Benign. It's a nonprofit organization that focuses on green chemistry education. And in partnership with them, we're working to get green chemistry curriculum into um, higher ed, uh, institutions around the world. Because if you are not able to change uh, people's behavior at the point of use, you really have to think about where's that strategic lever and that strategic lever is what they're learning. And if students can then put a new lens on as they're doing this work and change how they're thinking about it, it changes what happens in terms of the materials they choose to use down the road. So we kicked this off uh, last year. Uh, this is the first full year of it in 2023, but we've already seen um, outperformance in terms of the number of signers, so institutions signing. So there have been more than 47 institutions that have signed the Green Chemistry Commitment this year, which means that this year alone, you're looking at approximately 861,000 students who now have been exposed to green chemistry curriculum that hadn't been before. So when we look at this pipeline change, the target that we have is getting to approximately 14 million students. Uh, so a significant increase of the number of people who have exposure to this. But to me, that's a key component that you've got people who are on the customer side ready to implement and use these uh, sustainability-driven uh, solutions. Oh, that's a that's a wonderful initiative. So is this run and managed by the not for profit or is this run by you? So it's run by the nonprofit. One of the things that we were very clear on is we didn't want it to seem like uh, us as a company, we're trying to uh, control or manipulate curriculum. That's not what we are around for. And that's why this nonprofit organization that is separate from us, we don't have any say in the curriculum. That is done by kind of a community of practitioners. So you've got academics, you've got uh, other experts in there um, who are actually doing the curriculum development and then working with the institutions. So we are really a, a support vehicle. And then we also help with getting the word out. So uh, more of a megaphone, uh, but the actual delivery of the curriculum and building that community happens from beyond benign, which I think is, is really fantastic because they have the um, experience and I think they have the um, 
recognition within the community for doing really strong work. All right, great. And I think uh, all the best with that initiative. I think it's a vital requirement and a gap that you're, you're fulfilling right now. Um, so, Jeffrey, um, perhaps for uh, all the listeners and viewers who would want to pick up some pearls of wisdom from your experiences, uh, what would be your mantra that you could share with them to also follow your footsteps? Absolutely. So I'm a huge believer that uh, just about anything is possible. Now, there are a few things that I'm like, well, maybe not yet on that. Uh, but if you if you talk with the great group of people I get to work with, um, I think I, I hope that's one of the things that comes through is that all of the things that we have done have really seemed impossible to start with. You know, if I look back at some of the work that we've done on um, greener solvents, I remember back in, in 2013 to 2015, and some of my colleagues like, laughed. They were like, this is not going to happen. This is not going to happen. Now, it took longer than we had hoped, but we've stuck with it. And now we're starting to see that corner turn. And I think what we have learned with each kind of project that we've done is that we have to be resilient. Uh, so I think resiliency is another kind of pearl of wisdom is it is tough. Um, I don't think people necessarily understand what it takes to change behavior. And that takes resilience to withstand our natural human tendencies. And that's, that's you know, not a problem. Like, I understand why people um, are hesitant to make changes. It's uncomfortable. We're creatures of habit. But um, doing this kind of work is tough. And uh, you have to have the ability to stick with it, um, to be clear about the the reason why you're doing what you're doing so we uh, i would say another thing is make sure you're clear with your business case your strategy um, and your execution and the outcomes right people uh, in, in this space right you can't see elimination of carbon right it's not something that you're like oh i see it happening it's great you can see that with things like packaging reduction i joke because we get you know a lot of feedback about packaging and i say that's where you can tell if you're good at sustainability or not but for all of these other things that you can't see you've got to figure out compelling ways to share those with people so you can get them on board because the reasons we have accomplished what we've done is because we've multiplied uh, the the number of folks who have said there's something really cool happening over there and I want to be a part of it. And I think that is really where you get this remarkable pull and you create uh, momentum and it's magnetic. And that for me is the, the differentiator about what we're doing is that it's now got such um, an engine behind it that is powered uh, by 28,000 people rather than powered by, you know, uh, a few of us. And that is the, that's the part that really sets this, uh, sets this apart. Great. All the best with all your initiatives. And thank you very much for finding time to join us on uh, Big Time Sustainability. Thank you for having me. It's been a fantastic conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Big Time Sustainability. Please share, subscribe, and join us again next time. If you are a changemaker or know someone who is making a big difference in their community or globally, and should be on this show, please email us at podcast at thebigsynergy.org or visit www.thebigsynergy.org.